Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. Welcome back to the All Things Beer podcast, which this month is going to be All Things Irish. And we are going to go down the rabbit hole of Irish stouts. And we've got a guest this month, do we not, Mark? Yes, we do. Well, you know, we almost always have a guest, but this month we got a very special guest who actually just got back from Ireland, coincidentally, Madeline Bogard in the house. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. Are you excited about drinking some Guinness today? I am. Uh, I was just telling you guys before we hit record that I haven't had a Guinness since I've been back in the States, and so a little nervous that I won't like it as much as I liked it in Ireland, but Ooh, I guess yeah, we're here to find tough. out. Well, we got it three ways today, right? We've got the draft, the nitrogen version that you would normally get on a very specific spigot if you're at the pub, and then we also have the Guinness Extra Stout and the Guinness Foreign extra stout. Now, we recently had some confusion online as we were trying to get someone to point us in the direction of finding some Guinness Foreign extra stout because it's hard to get around Columbus right now. It's impossible. You had to go down to Cincinnati. I did. Fortunately, there was also a Bachfest going on. Yeah, I took the opportunity to uh, visit a few places. I went to uh, Sonder Brewing on the way down and then to uh, Brink Brewing. Oh, yeah. I had their English Mild, which was excellent. Oh, wonderful. We featured them on the last podcast. That's right, the Milk Stout. Yeah. Moozy. Moozy. And then I finished to a place I had never been before, but was very cool, Fibonacci Brewing, which is in a northern part of Cincinnati, a place called Mount Healthy, and they've got an acre and a half of land. There's a huge beer garden. They raise bees. They've got goats and chickens. They've got even a and b on site. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, I got to text my parents about that place. Fibonacci? Fibonacci mm-hmm. in Mount Healthy. Yeah, I'm looking down. forward to getting back there. Well, let's start with what we're drinking. To a lot of people, when you say Guinness, it just means one beer. Yeah. Right? And even when you say Irish stout, it just means one beer, and that is the Guinness draft. So we're starting with that out of the nitrogenated can with the widget. Mark, am I correct that we are also not limiting ourselves exclusively to Guinness here, right? That's right. I've got a surprise pour for you. Now, also, not in Dublin, in Cork, there is the Murphy's. Stout that's also on the nitrogen widget in the can. We got two glasses in front of us. I'm not going to tell even myself which one they are. I've got them color-coded on the bottom of the glass. So I thought, well, maybe we'll have a big reveal before we move on to the next round of beers and find out which one is our preference. Always trying to build some suspense into the show. They're not wildly different, so I think if we broadly say Irish stouts, what would you say are the defining characteristics of one of these beers? It's malty. Mm-hmm. A little burnt and chalky. That's not in the front, though. That's kind of refreshing, actually. Yeah, I mean, the roasted malts and the roasted unmalted barley give these beers flavors that you might associate with dark chocolate, maybe coffee. And then it has to be said, right, the, the, the mouthfeel is just really creamy. Very smooth. Very, very smooth. I feel yeah. like the aftertaste is the same as a chocolate-covered espresso bean. 
Okay, yeah, I can yeah. see that. After you have a few sips of each, they, I don't know, one's a little more rounder, but I mean, so slight. <laughs> yeah, I think one of them has a little bit more sweetness to it. Mm-hmm. And the other one is a little drier and maybe, although I wouldn't never call this a hoppy beer, it's actually, there's a reasonable amount of IBUs in a Irish stout. Yes, definitely balanced out from just being all malt. I'm kind of all racing that those of us other than you, Madeline, are fighting the uh, got Guinness mustache <laughs> uh, accompanying our this morning, <laughs> Yeah, that, so. was, that was a good move. <laughs> As we're getting down into these glasses, and it's one of the cool things on dry iris stouts, the head just stays with it all the way down. It's just nice to have those fine little bubbles that were created by the nitrogen. I mean, when you're in Ireland and you order a Guinness or a Murphy's, they let it sit for like four minutes, about three-fourths of the way full to settle, and then they'll top it off, and then you can have it. But it's like part of the full experience is them making you wait for it. Oh, yeah. And I love it. That's part of the ritual, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this thing that if you have to wait for something, you know, you build some anticipation, it makes it even better. Although I guess in a busy pub in Ireland uh, with lots of people there, sometimes they might be tempted to cut the corners. Did you see any of that, Matt? No, I didn't. I did finesse a bartender into teaching me how to do it. I personally did not cut corners. Either. Okay, okay. Took yeah. it very seriously. <laughs> did he let you uh, pour Guinness? I, yeah, I have video evidence that I can show you guys. Oh, well. nice. Yeah, we'll have to check that out later. Yeah, and oh, that's I good. learned from Gary and County Cary at Kenmare Brewhouse. Oh, I like that that rhymes too. Well, I said, I was like, do people just say that? He's like, no, because it's Gary and then Carrie. No, he's like, different. And I was like... <laughs> Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Nice. Well, are we ready to play the game Guess the Guinness? Yeah, I think I could guess. And I should reveal that back in grad school, I had a strong preference for Murphy's over Guinness. And so I would generally seek out Murphy's when I could get it. And I think the difference, I might be wrong. This might, I might be a little bit foolish, but I think the Murphy's has a, a little more sweetness. It's mm-hmm. not quite as dry. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to guess that my glass that's almost empty uh, is the Guinness, and the mm-hmm. other one is the Murphy's. I think my left glass is the Murphy's. Okay. And my right is the Guinness. And what color is which orange? One? Orange, I think, is the Murphy's. Same on me. Well, I've got to tell you, my orange reveal is the emptiest, so you can tell which one I like the best. <laughs> and that is the Murphy's. So. Look at us. It looks like Murphy's wins, although, you know, surely isn't quite as celebrated as Guinness here and all over the world. One interesting thing I was reading about the different advertising campaigns that the breweries have in Ireland. So for a while, Guinness had an advertising campaign. It was, you know, said Guinness, a beer worth training for. And so then I guess on buses around Ireland, Murphy's ran a competing ad campaign where they said, Murphy's, no experience required. <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> but I guess the point being that, you know, you don't have to acquire a taste for Murphy's. You just like it right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Now, Madeline, did you get down to Cork when you were in Ireland? We did. Yeah, we went to County Cork. We didn't go to the city of Cork at all. But we spent a lot of time kind of in the very rural parts of Ireland. My mom has some friends who live over there. My parents are also both artists. And so we spent a lot of time um, exploring and getting a lot of inspiration for their art. Okay, cool. And this was in January, is that right? Yes, it was end of January. I think by early February, we were also still in Cork for a few days. Okay. Um, They have another stout down there that was local that they called the Stag Stout. Okay. So when we were in Ballyverney in County Cork, 
that's what we had and said. Was the stag stout dry Irish as well? Oh, yeah. And okay. It was very similar. Um, I had asked for a Murphy's and the bartender was like, you should really have the more local one. And I was like, well, I thought Murphy's was the more local one. <laughs> <Yeah>. But okay. <laughs> um, it tasted very similar to me. It was delicious. Either way, it worked out. Now that you've had some Guinness since you've been back, out of a can, no less, how would it compare to what you had when you were in Ireland? I think it felt thicker in Ireland. Mm. And I will say I don't have the best words for describing beer. And so I feel like the best I can do is it felt thicker and more smooth in Ireland out of the tap than just from the can here. It's still really good. The flavors are very similar, but it feels a little more flat. Yeah. Not as full. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, I think those are all pretty good descriptions for Thank someone you. that yeah. doesn't think she describes beer well. I did listen well. to an episode in advance. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. I agree with you totally. It just seems sort of creamier. It's so easy to drink. My dad called it black water while we were there. He's yeah. like, well, we need to go rehydrate. It's <laughs> black water. And, you know, that's maybe a good point to say that, you know, for some people, they think, oh, Guinness, that's like a really heavy intense beer right have you ever heard anybody yeah. say that yeah and guinness draft is like uh, almost as light as bud light yeah. i mean it's so light what yeah. is it like four percent abv mm-hmm. i think 4.2 percent and 125 calories yeah, see so, what i mean you know, it's it's healthy uh, mm-hmm. i mean as they say guinness is good for you right that's right it you is. know in the last episode we talked a lot about the idea of stouts being healthy for you and guinness was totally uh, on board with that, right? Guinness, it's good for you. They had a whole bunch of advertising Oh, yeah. You that. see those slogans still, like when you go mm-hmm. in the Irish pub or even just some bars that have a Every poster on a wall, the you know. Yeah, 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 all of the that. Toucans. Zoo yeah. animals. In the early days, Guinness took a little while to find their footing. And then basically after a while, by 1800, they had settled into making London porters. And so if you go back to the January podcast, uh, our friend Nick Smith talks in detail about, you know, London porters of the time and how they were a blend of young and old beer oftentimes. Mm-hmm. And so Guinness basically was making almost all porters by 1800. But they were a little earlier than the English to embrace a few changes in the malts. So they went with the pale malts and the black patent malts probably earlier than a lot of the London breweries who were still doing the brown malts. And Nick explained that's probably because of the tastes of the London porters. I don't know. And then later on, maybe around 1880, they started using roasted unmalted barley, which is something that was illegal in England. So the English breweries could not use unmalted barley. That was a verboten ingredient. Why was it illegal? It's kind of like the Reinheitsgebot, that there's certain laws about what you can put in beer. And the idea of it is to protect consumers from breweries putting inferior ingredients into the beer. It feels very Irish that, like, the British were like, you can't do this. And they're like, (laughs) okay, watch us. And I guess we should say in 1880, Ireland was still part of Great Britain. Mm -hmm. So that must have been an English law, I assume. Anyway, you know, then that led to this beer, which was that aged, right? So they were brewing it at St. James Gate Brewery there in Dublin. They were aging the beer for three or four months, I think, from what I've read in these wooden vats. And then they would blend it back in with younger beer. And that went on until basically in the 1950s. And then that's when the nitrogenation came about. We're going to come back to the nitrogenation story a little bit later. But those elements that you taste in this beer, the sort of dark chocolate coffee flavors, the creamy mouthfeel, really, if we were to go back to the early days of Guinness, I mean, it would have been a very different beer. None of that stuff would have been there. 
I didn't like Guinness like prior to going to Ireland, which is probably the most bougie thing that I've said in a while. I was like, I don't like it. And then I went to Ireland. I'm like, oh, but I like this. Um, and so I had a glass and a glass is a half pint and you can mm. order like that as a size. And that's like, they're like, oh yeah, cool. A glass, they'll give it to you. And so I had a glass of Guinness. And then after that singular glass, I only had pints the rest of the entire time that okay. I was there. Okay. So you proverbially broke the glass and went with the <laughs> yeah. pint. Yeah. That's yeah, smart. Absolutely. That's smart. My own glass ceiling when it comes to Guinness. And could you order any other kind of beer at these places? You could. Yeah. They had, they drink a lot of Coors Light. Oh, <laughs> Which boy. was very yeah, all right. weird to That's me. It. I, I know. Ireland, we lost a little respect for you right there, or at least I did. It was like that's like their go-to, or at least the people we were hanging out with, like that's their go-to okay. beer. Which okay, I just thought was very interesting because I was like, you guys have Guinness <laughs> here, also like other fun cocktails and stuff. Yeah, I had some really yeah. good gin while I was over there too. Now, what about other breweries in Ireland besides? Murphy's and Guinness. Um, so I, I went to Ireland and I went to some places. There's not a ton of craft breweries at that time anyway, 2018 in Ireland, but I think there's more coming along. There's another brewery in Dublin called Porterhouse that's been around for a while. They make pretty good beer. Yeah. In County Kerry, when we were down in the Southwest, we went to, it's called the Kenmare Brewhouse. I think they were working on like starting to do their own craft stuff, but for now we're kind of like a hub for a lot of other local craft brews that you okay. could get there i did drink guinness while i was there um and that's where i finessed the bartender to teach me how to pour my own pint okay you had mentioned something earlier about splitting the g yes okay i also learned this here when you have your pint of guinness and it's in like the true guinness pint that says guinness on the side allegedly you're supposed to on your first sip which could be they said three or less gulps. Okay. Um, you're going to try to do your best to drink just enough to split the G in half in one go. Oh, okay. And that's like the goal. That's kind of the tradition. Uh, mind you, this was like our second to last night of the trip. And this was the first time I was hearing about it. <laughs> okay. But it felt kind of fun. So then the rest of the Guinness that we had after that, which we still had quite a few. And yeah. It was the Irish few. So a lot. Um, we all tried to, to do that. Me well, and my dad especially. Yeah. I mean, the... The day's not over yet. I think we'll have to work on this split the G practice. Well, and Pat brought glasses, too. Yeah. You've got to have the official glassware to do that, right? You do. There's another Irish brewery that, for a while, you could get it here in Columbus. And I think it's not the name of the brewery, but the beer was called O'Hara's. They had a beer called Leanne Foylan. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but that's my best uh, guess Sounds at it. Sounds right to me. Which I think is <laughs> would be like the equivalent of the extra stout, which I think we're about to have. But I stopped there on the way. We went from Dublin. We spent about three days in Dublin. And I guess I should say I did do a tour of Guinness. That's probably the most popular tourist destination of all of Ireland. There's something called the Guinness Storehouse. So it's a seven-story building. And it's kind of a self-guided thing. It's like going to a museum of Guinness but where they don't really want to tell you anything about how Guinness is made. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, I like the lore. It seems kind of Wizard of Oz-ish. We don't want to let you see the little guy behind the curtain pulling the levers. We're <laughs> just going to tell you there's a curtain there, and he's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that would be accurate. There's lots of great photo opportunities. You can stand in front of like something that's supposed to simulate like you're in a glass of Guinness with bubbles going up behind oh. you. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the advertising of Guinness. I did learn that the roasted barley that they use, they roasted, I think, at 450 degrees Fahrenheit. And if it got five degrees higher, it would just burst into flames. So they're, they're roasting it really close to the combustion point. I learned that the water that's used in Guinness... Homebrew- it's, diff- it's different water. 
That's right. It's not the water that everybody else in Dublin yeah. drinks, right? Which is kind of hard water. And historically, dark beers and water that has a lot of mineral content in it go together. But Guinness is brewed with soft water. There's specific trucks that will transport the water for Guinness, like across Ireland. Wow. Okay. And the water that they use here is different. And that's one of the reasons that Guinness in the States tastes different than in Ireland. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Pat, you mentioned earlier about this Guinness Extra Stout, and I have not heard a bottle open yet. That's because it's in a can, but let's get to it. (laughs) (laughs) So we're drinking now the Guinness Extra Stout. It Mm -hmm. smells different. It does smell different, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the differences from, you know, just the thousand foot view would be this is stronger. It's 5.6% ABV. And it's not nitrogenated, right? So this is just carbonated like a typical stout. Okay, well, this still has a very nice thick head on it. The head on this looks different, though. Like, it's still there. It doesn't look as smooth. There's a lot more bubbles in it. Yeah, and they're way larger bubbles. Nitrogen puts off a very fine bubble. This feels like drinking a LaCroix after drinking, like, a normal bottle of water. Yeah, it's way carbonated in comparison. Like, the so word that is, comes yeah, to mind is prickly. spicy. Uh-huh. Yeah, prickly, spicy. Yeah. Jazzy. <laughs> Zesty. I mean, the mouthfeel is not as creamy, but on the other hand, also more substantial. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a trick to make a 4.2% beer taste like Guinness does, you know, with a lot of flavor and that really creamy mouthfeel. If you think about a lot of 4.2% beers, it's, you know, kind of close to water. Mm-hmm. I mean, black water. But but because of the nitrogenation, <laughs> it doesn't feel like water in your mouth, right? And it doesn't taste like water either. This might be a good time to talk about the whole story behind nitrogenation because now we're drinking something where it's not there. And I think it's a very good beer, but a lot more like what you might find if I went to a brew pub around town or a brewery than Guinness on the Nitro Pour is sort of kind of its own special unicorn. Who is Mr. Nitrogenation? What is it? What is the background <clears throat> no. of it? Well, how did I'm, it come to be? Now that you ask, so the who is someone named Michael Ash, who was a mathematician. He was like one of the top students at Cambridge. So he was, from what I read, maybe one of the first people that Guinness hired that had no experience at all in brewing. And they wanted him, just because he was smart, to come work for them and solve problems. We all need a nerd on staff, for sure. (laughs) For sure. I work with a lot of engineers, and they're my favorite people that I work with. Yeah, that's good. It's handy to have, uh, you know, an engineer, a scientist, a mathematician around for certain things. We talked earlier about the whole ceremony of a Guinness pour, but it used to be actually even more complicated. They had a system they called the high and the low. And so they would have the low was a beer that was old, maybe six months old or something like that, very low carbonation. And then they had a high that was young beer that was very highly carbonated. And they would mix these two together. And I don't know how long the pour took, but probably longer than the modern Guinness pour. The other thing is to push the beer out of the low, they used air. And air is about 75% nitrogen, 25% oxygen. So that oxygen, if you didn't turn that keg over quickly, and of course in Dublin, you know, they would turn it over. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like the keg's going to be on for more than a day. But, you know, in, I don't know, Sheffield, maybe the Guinness didn't go that fast. And so then it would spoil, it would become like vinegar, it would get acetic. And so they needed something else because everywhere else Guinness was sold basically in a bottle. And bottled beer kind of fell out of fashion in Britain. 
So the question was, how could we get that characteristics of that high-low beer in Ireland, but make it, you know, in a way that people could serve it more easily? And so this guy, Michael Ash, he had this idea, if we just turned up the carbon dioxide, it would not be, we were just talking about the mouthfeel, right? And, and the way the carbon dioxide feels on your mouth prickly. Yeah, changes drastically. Yeah, yeah. So they wanted it to be like a cascale with the low carbonation. And so he thought, well, you know, air is mostly nitrogen. So maybe we could use nitrogen. And, and that was, that's basically the genesis of the idea. But I think it took about four or five years to perfect it. So when this started happening, did like all of the pubs kind of locally, like in Dublin at first and then across the rest of the country, just start having like nitrogen that they were just like, all right, this is what we're going to, we're going to build this thing specifically just for the Guinness? Good. That's a good question. Of course, because Guinness was dominant in Ireland, they could kind of do what they wanted to. And so it's not like the pubs said they wanted to change, but Guinness said, we're going to change. We're going to stop making the beer the old way and start making it this new way. And from what I read... There were a lot of complaints in Ireland. People are like, this isn't the same. You know, I don't know if I like this. But everywhere else in the world, then Guinness became, you know, more popular because of it. I think, I don't know, as far as I can tell, people in Ireland have now come to terms with it. And they're, they're not still complaining. They have. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you noticed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the key thing there is, I can tell you as a chemist, that if you had the same pressure of gas, of nitrogen and carbon dioxide over a beer you would get almost 100 times more carbon dioxide dissolved into the beer than you would nitrogen. Somewhere between 50 and 100 times, but yeah. let's just say 100 times. So not that much nitrogen goes into the beer, but it can push it out. There's also, you have to have some basically fluid mechanics of restrictor plates and other things, so it doesn't That's just right. Inside that shoot cylinder. out. Right? Now, yeah. if you took that off, it would be just like a normal pour. Right. Yeah. But that restrictor plate is very important to that, and it acts as like the sparkler. Like on your pub tap. So was Murphy's then after Guinness started using nitrogen? Murphy's uses it, correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. That's so right. they were like, that's kind of a good idea. We should do that. Yes. Basically, Guinness was the first in the world to do it. And then like everybody who made Irish stouts is like, okay. okay you know, we work. have to do this more or less, I think. Yeah. Probably, it was probably like, let, let Guinness sell those faucets and then we'll put our beer <laughs> in. Okay. So how about in this though? We've got... The thing rattling around, you know, the widget, as they call it. I used to think that this was filled with nitrogen. And when you pop the top, it somehow broke a seal inside this widget and exploded nitrogen into solution. Not true. <laughs> not true. Not true. It's not that they put in a nitrogen-filled sphere that breaks somehow when you open it. Oh, yeah. And I also think everybody... The first times they had this, of course, you had to cut a can open. You're like, what the hell is in this thing? Yeah. I must cut it open and find out. I did do that last St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. I, was, I had my first like Guinness in a can. And again, this was pre-Ireland. So I was like, I don't super like this, but what is happening in here? Because I, I lifted it and I was like, there's, some, there's something in there. What is in there? They don't tell you. It's not like they're like, check out the widget for yeah. More info on the, the and what did the what did the widget look like for it, the people who haven't done that? It was a little tiny sphere, probably like a little bit bigger than like if a, a quarter, quarter size became like a a ball. A sphere was but, there a little hole in it? Yes. Okay. One thing I want to get to before how the widget works, and then is like how do you get that nitrogen in there? And from what I've read, they just use liquid nitrogen. Do you guys know what liquid nitrogen is like? I once put gummy bears in liquid nitrogen, uh, actually with Professor Chris Callum. Okay, yes, yes. Yeah, that uh, we were doing a, a 
one-on-one getting to know each other as part of an organization <laughs> at Ohio State and we just froze stuff and then ate it and it was so fun. Okay. Oh, yeah. I have also experienced this with Coastside Joe doing the same stunt and he was for a while going around to pubs doing this, which was awesome. It's a good parlor trick for scientists. Yeah, for sure. yeah. You're like, whoa, you mean like freeze this food? And, <laughs> ooh, I wonder what that tastes like. I think it's great. So from what I understand, they just put a little liquid nitrogen into the beer. Then they spin the lid on and seal it up. And then, of course, it warms up. The liquid nitrogen becomes a gas, and that's what basically pressurizes the can. But the role of the widget is there's enough pressure in the can that, like, the gas and the beer go into that little ball. And so the ball, because it only has a small hole in it, is acting a bit like the restrictor plate on, you know, the draft pour. So the beer's like, oh, wait a minute. Now the pressure is all of a sudden released because you open the can, and it's like, shh shooting out of that ball and that that little hole basically gives you all of those bubbles because the nitrogen wants to get out of the beer as fast as it can all right so we've had a couple guinness now i would have to say I miss the creaminess on this. I think that the extra stout side by side, I think I want to go back to having a nice pillowy head. But while we're having these stouts, we should probably talk about this is the month. This is St. Patrick's. If you're listening to this when it releases, the big show is coming up this week, St. Patrick's Day, the day where everybody in the world, and especially here in the U.S., gets to become Irish for a day, whether they are or not. Let's talk a little St. Pat's. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we might start by talking about things that are not Guinness that people drink on St. Patrick's Day, right? <laughs> uh, green beer? Green beer. Yeah. Green beer day at Miami. I always just thought that seemed pointless. But it's part of the experience. That's true. Yeah. How fun, you know? Oh, I do have to tell you guys about when I was in Ireland, I had these shots that are called baby Guinness. And Ooh, you ever heard of these? I have had this. Actually. Okay. I haven't. Let me tell you. It's not like a shot of like tequila it is like mm-hmm. it's a fun shot um and so it's tia maria i think is the name of the liqueur okay and yeah. then um bailey's and so the way you pour it like the bailey sits on top and it looks like a little tiny baby guinness yep. and they have these little special shot glasses <laughs> for it and i had so many baby guinness at the <laughs> nice. wedding that i was at and just throughout my rest of the time there it was it was very fun so that's another non-actual guinness drink that sure. is pretty popular i'd oh, never yeah. heard of it before Ever. Yeah, but you could ask anyone in Ireland, like at, at any bar, be like, "Yeah, I'll have a baby Guinness, please." And they're like, "Okay." And obviously, Jameson. I mean, I thought we were going to have shots today, but I forget to pick up <laughs> pick up a bottle, Jameson. <laughs> Man, I'm disappointed. I you blow know? it. Didn't I? I see here in the script, drink a Jameson at the end. But yeah, anyway. well, you know, right, sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. That's you did okay. make Irish stew though, and so I think that counts for something. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we are going to have some Irish stew later. We're trying to keep the theme going here around the All Things Beer studio, even after recording, we won't make you listen to us eat the stew. <laughs> we'll tell you about the mouthfeel, though, later. Yeah. Now, St. Patrick's Day, by the way, you should just refer to me as St. Patrick for the rest of the oh, podcast. Jesus that's Christ, okay. here we go. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. <laughs> I had a feeling guy. this was coming. Yeah. You know, even on our outro on the last yeah. podcast, Pat's like, oh, well, as a Patrick, I approve of this message, whatever you said. I love it. <laughs> Actually, I think it's a bigger bacchanalia for sure in the United States than it is in Ireland. I've never been in Ireland for St. Patrick's Day. I guess you guys have not either, right? No. No. 
the biggest St. Patrick's Day party I've ever been to in my life was in Butte, Montana. Probably because there's not much else to do in Butte, Montana. Well, but that would apply to a lot of America. Okay, touche. <laughs> just to be fair. Just to be fair. Butte had enormous copper mines. I think the population there around World War I was 120,000 people. The population now is about 20,000 people. But because of that, I think there are a lot of Irish immigrants that came there to work in the mines. And so they developed this huge St. Patrick's Day party. I should say I didn't drive from Ohio to Montana for this party. I lived in Idaho at the time. But I had a friend who was like, hey, let's go up to Butte. And we had to get our hotel reservations like six weeks in advance. Because the whole town goes from 20,000 to, I don't know, probably 50,000 on that day. Okay. It was a lot of fun. So those of you listening out in the West, you know, don't sleep on the St. Patrick's Day in Butte. Well, uh, I mean, we're going to head there now, aren't we, Madeline? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. How about you? What's a good St. Pat's memory? Where do you normally go? Well. <laughs> What's some good ones that you've been to? So context is that I grew up competitively Irish dancing for 12 years, started around when I was six-ish and then finished up after I graduated high school and had left Cincinnati to come to Columbus for college at Ohio State. Um, Irish dancing is very, there's a lot of layers to it. Not only is it such a sport, but there's also kind of the performance aspect of it, all the glitz and the glam and the wigs and the dresses and the... I do have a question. Is it judged kind of like figure skating? Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Yeah, actually. So one of my college roommates competitively figure skated for her whole life and was president of Ohio State's club figure skating team. Shout out to Isabel. I mean, we had a lot of crossover, you know, talking about uh, she would get in a new kind of leotard that she would be wearing on the ice for a performance with Ohio State's club figure skating team. And I'm like, oh, how many crystals are in there? And she's like, there's about 500. And I was like, nice. Like we related to that, but we (laughs) also understand the extreme sport side of things too. But with that being said, There's quite a few big competitions in Irish dancing. There's Aractus, which is a Gaelic word that basically just means like competition. And that is like your regional competitions. And so the Midwest Aractus is always held over Thanksgiving weekend. The national championships, those are always held over 4th of July. And then the world championships are always held over Easter. It's always falling on a pretty major holiday. And so the one that is closest to St. Patrick's Day is World's. And Worlds changes locations every year. Sometimes it'll be in the States, but I've been able to travel internationally, competed in Montreal, competed in London, and competed in Boston the three times that I went. And it's expensive. Like, it's also an expensive sport when you're putting 500 Swarovski crystals on a dress. Like, (laughs) it's pricey. It adds up. And so what we would do is we would go to all of the Irish bars and really any bar, too, that wasn't specifically Irish but was having celebrations in Cincinnati And we'd work with them and they'd like know like, okay, yeah, sometime the McGing Irish dancers, which is where I danced and was trained, will show up. And, you know, we would not show up by any means in like our full costume or wigs because I would never want to be around a bunch of drunk people when I'm in one of those. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, And so we'd do like yoga pants and like our McGing Irish dancer sweatshirts, but we'd be wearing our hard shoes, which are the shoes that make the sound. Uh Um, And so every St. Patrick's Day, you'd have a schedule. Everyone would be split up across the city. And you'd probably have between like eight to 12 bars or events to go show up at and dance. You're probably there for half an hour, 45 minutes. It's a whole thing. I would skip school. Like, yeah, I started at 7 a.m. We do <laughs> kegs and eggs and we start early with everyone else and we get tips, right? Like we pass the hat because drunk people, when you're Irish dancing in front of them, they're like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, like, that's cool. Is, you're like, this is easy, right? And so you get a lot of tips, a lot of money. 
we bring it back and our dance teachers, our studio, they split it up among everyone who went out to the bars, who's also going to Worlds as like a way to help people um, then kind of either have like fun money to use or just help kind of ease the cost of transportation to get there. It was always really funny when I was like 16 or 17 and you're <laughs> at a bar at like 2 p.m., on like a Tuesday and it's packed. Like everyone, everyone's wasted and people are offering you shots and you're like, I should actually be in like AP US history right now. But like, thank you for the support. I feel like it's hard to pick just one true, like St. Patrick's Day memory because my entire life has been like based around that. Like, yeah, that's, it's our time to shine. Uh, My family also plays traditional Irish music. And so my brother now is a classical musician by training. He's at IU's Jacob School of Music, currently getting his master's and like auditioning for a bunch of orchestras. But the way that he got into music, he plays violin, is through learning by ear with Irish music. Okay. And so he started doing that when he was uh, little, probably like eight or nine, and then like has not turned back since. My mom was like, I'm going to be here like every Saturday with him. I might as well learn something. And so she started learning the whistle. And now she also plays the flute and traditional illin pipes. Um, Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So whole nine yards. And then I danced. My dad always said like, well, I don't dance. I finance. It was like (laughs) his whole thing. So um, very, very Irish family, like culturally for sure. Um, And then my mom's side of her family is also very Irish. Just like actually in ancestry oh that's awesome what is the difference between the ulm pipes and the bagpipes that is a great question so they both have like the bag as there's there's an airbag that you're pushing you're pushing with your arm but for the bagpipes you as the player are blowing into them and then also playing and so you're filling the bag using your breath and then pushing it out Mm, using your arm whereas ilan pipes um you have the bag like you would for a bagpipe but then you have a pump and so you're not using your mouth at all. I see. Okay. It looks a lot like bagpipes. Okay. You know, you're playing it kind of like this, but you're pumping with one arm and then kind of pushing down with the other arm and then also using your fingers to play okay. the actual tunes. Wow. That's like... It's intense. Spinning plates. Yeah. <laughs> it's really lot. intense. Yeah. yeah. It's... Yeah, it's a lot. What's the uh, Irish percussion instrument? Is it... The bowron? The bowron. I would. Yeah. I was going to call it a bodrain or something like that because well, the way it's spelled. Well, that's how it's spelled. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Everything is spelled uh, very <laughs> differently than you like think it's actually pronounced. Like the Illin pipes are like U I L L E A N N. There, I think there's two N's. But you say <laughs> Illin. Um, so the Bowron is a drum that has a hollow back to it, and okay. so when you're holding it, your one hand that's kind of holding it, you use your hand, you move it around the back to change like the tonality of the beats that you're doing. It's more of like kind of the rhythm instrument rather than the melody. And then you have um, like a, I don't exactly know what it's made of. I think probably historically it was made of like bone, but okay. you use like a little doodad, if you will. But, like a drumstick, yeah. Yeah. Some, something to yeah, beat and on you that. hold yeah. it just in the other hand and you hit the front of it, but you get okay. to move your hand around to change the tonality of it okay. and kind of change like how much it'll echo and the different things that it can do within a piece. Cool. Well, I always say there's nothing more Irish than a doodad. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> that's actually another ism of my dad's is like, you know, a doodad, like that, that thing. So when I was on that week in Ireland, where the music was the best was when we went to Galway. Yeah. And there's like a street you walk down there and there's like all kinds of pubs and there's like traditional Irish bands playing there. Sessions. Yeah. 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 That was very, very cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's very pattern focused. And so in the way that you think of the music, like there's usually a part A and a part B. And so they'll do like A, B, A, B, B, and then start on the next tune. 
Um, and there's a like different tunes that'll go together, like reels, jigs, slip jigs, treble jigs, hornpipes, like. And so oh, then when you yes, I've Patrick. got a question. Saint Patrick. I've got a question. Yes. <laughs> what is the difference uh-huh. between a reel and a jig? Um, okay, so. <laughs> The way that you can tell if something is a jig, it's really like the rhythm of it. Or okay. um, if you were going to think of like the time signature, okay. um, that's yes. kind of the, the time signature. They have a different, different time signature, yep. a reel and a jig. Yep. And so when you think of like a waltz versus a polka, like they're different. Sure. In One that. of those is three, four, I think. That's yes, the waltz. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. And so a jig, an easy way to tell if a tune you're listening to is a jig is if you can say like carrots and cabbages, carrots and cabbages, carrots and cabbages too. Like that is a jig. <laughs> okay. okay. And so in the way that music is very pattern based and you know, you, you think about it, it's, it's kind of mathematical, dance is the same way. And so mm-hmm. we have what we call like a first step and a second step. And sometimes there's a third step, depending on like the level that you're doing. Um, so you do the right foot and left foot of your first step, and then the right foot and left foot of your second step, and then the right foot and the left foot of your third step too, if you know, you were doing that. So it all lines up like together. And you can tell like, people will put on Danny Boy, and they're like, can you dance to this? <laughs> but I'm like, I would rather not. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Yeah. So it's been cool to like grow up with traditional Irish music being played live and then also be a dancer. Because when you're at competitions, you have like someone playing accordion, like they're playing and you're dancing on a stage for three judges. Okay. Well, I think we're going to finish with a beer that was not that easy to track down, right? Especially not around these parts. Columbus Distributor, step your game up. Yeah. Guinness Foreign Extra Stout is not available anywhere in the Columbus area. So I had to drive to Cincinnati yesterday to get this. It's a great place to go, Cincinnati. Uh, I had a great time. So this beer is the strongest of the Guinnesses, to my knowledge. So this is going to be 7.5%. So we went from 4.2 to 5.6 to 7.5. This one is not nitrogenated, just carbonated. Yeah. At one point in time, if we go back long enough, you know, Guinness would export beer. And Guinness has exported a lot of beer for a long time. But the export beer, they would put more hops and a little bit stronger beer. So it would still be good when it got to its location. Back in the day when they were using wooden vats, the beer would have had some Britannomyces character to it. So it would have had a kind of a funky, maybe a little bit sour taste to it. And it's a little bit controversial whether this beer has any uh, acidity to it. Do you guys get anything that would be funky or sour? Slightly. I mean, it could just be the acrid, sharp flavor of the burnt grains. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more of everything. I'm glad that we were able to find this. And when I say we, I mean you. Thanks for running down Jungle Gyms for us. Um, <laughs> I love Jungle Gyms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's, a, it's an adventure. It's a jungle. Uh, I always am so overwhelmed there. I'm like, I don't even know if I can get anything. There's so many things to look <laughs> at. So You're in there for like eight days. And yeah. you're still like, I don't know. Should yeah. I check out? I like this. I could skip the middle one. I yeah. could skip yeah. the extra yeah. stout because this is like a different animal. Yeah. Yeah. This feels like it's not really trying to be Guinness. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. the other, the one that was the middle one, the five point whatever percent one, It you're like, okay, that's Guinness-ish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We could and, call that one the mama bear. Right. And if, <laughs> if you gave me this one and like I didn't see that it was the Guinness for an extra stout, I'd be yeah. like, that's a nice dark beer. Mm-hmm. This is good. It is. I like uh, it. I'm glad you went and got this. You used to drink a lot of this. I think it was more readily available around these parts than it is now in Columbus. And I guess it was all over Dayton and Cincinnati, just not in this area. So if you're listening to this, trying to hunt it out, make a drive. Yep. Jungle Gems. Jungle Gems. Get on Jungle Gems. Which, man, it's way more. It actually is so much that 
I'm starting to get some of that creaminess back because yeah. it does have a very thick mouthfeel. So where before the beer was very light, like you say, black water, Madeline, but now this is rich, thick. Now you get that mouthfeel back that we had from that creamy head. You can't have just an Irish few of these pints, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm <laughs> kind of thinking way to get home. this is not the black water. This is no. the black beer. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. It's got a lot of character. And, you know, I don't know if there's any, it's obviously not a sour beer. Maybe there's just a tinge, but you're right. It might come just from the malts, from the roasted barley, uh, but it's a good beer. Oh, yeah, for sure. This style, the four extra stout, this is something that I've had down the Caribbean. You know, when you're at Caribbean islands, especially Jamaica, it's very popular. Now, for somebody that is a beer person, and of course, when you're on a beach and it's 90 degrees, yeah, a few carob or piton <laughs> or whatever your uh, local island light lager is. Sure, that's what you want. It's refreshing. But and you're like, man, I just want like a beer with flavor. And I'm like, why is all this Guinness here? You know, <laughs> so it is kind of cool to find that. And then actually, this is a popular enough thing that there is now a tropical stout as well. What makes it tropical? It's a separate style in beer judging mm -hmm. categories. There's something called tropical stout. And yeah. there are a number of these that are made in the Caribbean or in Africa. There's yep. one called lion stout. Mm -hmm. There's one called dragon stout. They're sweeter than this. They got that roasty character, but then kind of a lot of sweetness. Kind of like a milk stout meets a Guinness or basically meets this beer. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the last podcast where we were talking about beer for nourishment. They even have like, and I accidentally got this one time in Jamaica. I don't know, it's a touristy thing to do, but you go up the lift for the Jamaican bobsled thing. It's like a ski lift, but yeah. your toes are touching the tops of the trees on the way up the mountain. <laughs> and you get to the top, and of course, that's a great place to sit and have a beer, right? Yeah. And, man, I got this one, because I'm like, oh, I hadn't seen this one yet. You know, as we think, <laughs> Pat, oh, beer I haven't seen. What is this? So I get it, and it was zero ABV. It was just drinking wort, unfermented <laughs> So it was so sweet. Yeah. Oh and goodness. I was like, ooh, I was duped. But, <laughs> you know, I drank it. And I guess, you know, if you want to put on some weight, if you want to skip a meal, you can do it. Does it strike either of you as being odd that, like, this heavy, sweet, dark beer is popular in hot places? Yes. Yeah. I found it strange, too. It is kind of weird. I've heard one theory why that might be. There's not a lot of refrigeration in some hotter parts of the world, in Africa, in some parts of the Caribbean, I mean, you know, there are shanty towns in Jamaica and all those mm -hmm. islands. Well, I don't know if you take a Coors Light and warm it up to room temperature. No, thank you. It's pretty disgusting. But if Absolutely you, right? horrible. But if you take a Guinness or, you know, one of these like big stouts and warm it up to room temperature, it doesn't degrade as fast, right? No. It's actually probably still a better beer when you're drinking it Sometimes warm. it opens it up and you find more interesting yeah, sure. layers to it as it warms. So, yeah. That's one theory. That's a good theory. I'm going with that. You know, coming back to Ireland, Irish music is maybe even a better export than Guinness. But certainly Guinness and Irish music might be the two best exports. And so for a while, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I was actually really obsessed with Irish music of all kinds. And so I'm wearing a Pogues t-shirt right now. And 
Um, so kind of a little bit more on the rock end of things, but I like traditional music too. What, what are your guys' uh, favorite Irish music groups? Oh, I mean, I have a long list. I definitely lean more on like the traditional side of things sure. just based on what I grew up with. Um, if we're going to talk like things that you can dance to, Dean Crouch has a very specific album called Top Box, and that has some really incredible like this music was made for Irish dancers. Okay. He was an Irish dancer, also an incredible accordion player, just phenomenal um so top box dean crouch okay it's the best um real number two track seven my jam um uh, but then just for like more listening um lunasa is my favorite like traditional irish music band okay i think there's probably like five or six people in lunasa they tour all over their like legends the flute player um he and my mom are really good friends and so he also has like taught her at some of those camps that i was talking about earlier and he, they're kind of like rock stars but also like nice people which yeah. is wild um and then i like fluke and solos as well for like more kind of traditional things solos they'll also have some like songs that they'll sing like but mm-hmm. they're like traditional irish okay. songs okay and so yeah lunasa fluke uh, which is F-L-O-O-K and Solas are kind okay. of my go-to recommendations okay. for people trying to get into traditional stuff. Out of those three, Lunasa is probably the most traditional, um, but you can definitely find more very specific Just Trad. Yeah, cool. There. Okay. Now, Pat, I know you're real into the Pogues. Yeah, big Pogues fan. And I know for uh, millennials out there, not fans of U2 normally. I have met a few, <laughs> but I think it's that whole put their music automatically on the iPhone. That just what kind of, a violation of privacy. Wasn't it? It was just wrong. <laughs> it just didn't look good. So Pat and I know the young punk band U2 yeah, when they were good. So we were lucky enough that we didn't, well, I don't know if luck has anything to do with it. Technology had not advanced. We had phones with cords on them. <laughs> what? In that time, there were phones what is with that? cords. Yeah, and rotary dials. Yeah, yeah. So in that time, though, U2 was a pretty kick-ass punk band. Loved U2. Yeah, in the early days. Absolutely. Well, my all-time favorite it is not U2. I would have to say Thin Lizzy, forget about it. That yeah. for me... Phil Linett singing Whisking in the Jar. I love rock and roll. You know this about me. I love heavy metal. And even Metallica covered Whisking in the Jar that's pretty true. well in Thin Lizzy fashion. But that's me. I think Hosier is Irish. Oh, I yeah. That's I right. believe yeah, so. I think that's yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, he's yeah. Really good. What a voice, right? Yeah. yeah. Really good. Soulful. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a lot of passion in his voice. People there are immersed in music, I think, in a way that not every country can say. I thought you were going to say Inya. 100% incorrect. <laughs> I mean, maybe if like I was getting a massage or something, you know. It She's would be, hella relaxing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, I like some rock and roll. I like loud guitars. And hey, noteworthy, one of my favorite guitar players of all time, and I know you're a fan of as well, Pat, Gary Moore. Oh, yeah. Who played in Denton Lizzie. Fantastic. Uh, and want to have quite a solo career, both as a hard rock, heavy metal individual, and then switch to blues and yeah. like... He's freaking ruled it to the end of his life. I mean, what a great blues player, too. I mean, he did it all. Great guitar player. player. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't leave without throwing out a couple more names there. I mean, a big influence of the Pogues would be the Dubliners. And the Dubliners, they have a lot of great songs. If you're looking for music that you can drink beer to, yeah, you couldn't do much better than the Dubliners. You you could try uh, Seven Drunken Nights as a starting point. And then you've got also Christy Moore. I don't know. Christy oh my goodness, Moore. man! You should listen to some Christy Moore. Christy Moore has a song called "Delirium Tremens." Okay, and, and we all know what the Delirium Tremens is, right? Sure. No. Uh, this is like the shakes you get when you are hungover and you're oh, withdrawing I from know alcohol. That. Yes. <laughs> Never called it that. Though. I, I was going to say, 
Oh, and, you're hungover. Right. <laughs> you got the shakes. And, and of course, on a whole beer-related uh, theme, there's a very famous Belgian beer called Delirium Tremens, yep. and that's where that name comes from. Hmm. Okay. Uh, he was in a band that was very influential back in the 70s called I think maybe Planksty. Anyway. That's like the set dance. Okay. Is it? Okay. Planksty yeah. Hugh O'Donnell. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. Planksty Davis. So there's a couple more things that you can search out with St. Patrick's Day coming up. Well, I think this is fun exploring Guinness. Fantastic. It was yeah. fantastic. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on, Madeline. It's so good to see you, as always. Hey, plug your improv comedy, because I'm going to come out and see you later this month. I mean, our studio is here in Clintonville. We all know this. And uh, just down the way at the Nest, right? Yeah, the Nest Theater is Columbus's only dedicated improv training facility, as well as theater. It's in the Old North, uh, right next to Hound Dogs, if you're familiar. Definitely stop by. We have shows like pretty much every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. My next show is on the 25th of March of a team called Commando that I'm on. And so we're performing, but there's like, I think over 25 rotational shows and a lot of them happen a few times a month. So definitely check it out. It's incredible. Some of the best people and funniest people you ever meet. Oh, that's great. Okay. Uh, let's uh, right. yeah. cash out uh, the studio here yeah. and go have some Irish stew. Absolutely. Slunche. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. Slunche. Oh, good stuff. Oh, yeah.